You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. One of my favorite authors when I was growing up was an author named Jack London. Anybody heard of Jack London? Gosh, I hope so. No, a lot of... Okay. All right, so if you're a male over the age of 35, I'm really hoping you know who Jack London is. He is the author of A Call of the Wild and White Fang. You guys know these stories, right? Okay, I hope so. If not, may the Lord have mercy upon your souls. All right, and just really just period for all of us. Uh, Jack London uh, wrote A Call of the Wild and White Fang, and he was absolutely one of my favorite authors. He also wrote a small little tale uh, back in 1908 called To Build a Fire. Anybody? That's your favorite? Fantastic. Love it when people die. It's great. (laughs) Absolutely wonderful. So, okay, fantastic. Now I have to remember and actually summarize it correctly. There's two versions of To Build a Fire, one written in 1905 one written in 1908, so if I describe it incorrectly, I'm describing the other one, okay? Uh, The the story is about a man up in the Yukon, which is apparently where every one of Jack London's books take place. Uh, And this man is coming up there to meet some friend of his at a mining camp. And when he gets up there, he's got to trek through the wilderness a good distance to get up to this mining camp, and he intends to set off in a particularly brutal season of the year. And he's warned before he goes not to, that the weather is not something to be trifled with, and that if things go badly, he will die. Well, he sets out, and in this small little tale, he, he, he experiences all sorts of difficulties. And his solution, whenever he really meets a difficulty, is to light a fire. When he's hungry, he lights a fire. When he's cold, he lights a fire. When the weather starts to get bad and the sun starts to go down, he lights a fire. Unfortunately, at some point in time in the story, as he's traveling out there, when his his feet are just completely numb, the weather is getting worse, the sun has gone down, he strikes his final match and he lights the fire, hoping that he can keep this fire going at least until the sun comes back up. Except for the fact that in his haste, In one moment, he brushes with his feet against the twigs that the fire is built out of, and the fire extinguishes. And he's left with nothing. Eventually, in haste, he makes his way, fleeing towards where he thinks the camp is, eventually falls down and perishes. Again, chipper story. Now, here's the thing about light We tend to take it for granted, right? When I go into a room and I flick a light switch on, I expect that the room, no matter how dark it is outside, will go from dark to light, right? When the power goes out in Mascuda, which it does once every four to six weeks, at least if you live in my house, uh, we like act like it's an apocalypse in our house, right? Like, how are we supposed to survive? in this house stocked with food and blankets and shelter, right? The TV won't come on, the Xbox won't turn on, and the light switch doesn't work, right? Light for us is something that we just expect. It's a right. 
But it hasn't always been that way. As a matter of fact, through the history of the world, light has not been a right. It's been something that we've had to fight for, especially in the midst of darkness. And just like in the story to build a fire, when light comes, darkness doesn't give up easily. It doesn't just succumb and flee. It fights back. It pushes It tries to extinguish the source of the light. The light oftentimes feels like an intruder in the midst of the darkness. The Gospel writer John, in the first five verses of his Gospel, has been setting up in this kind of poetic and grand nature the story of Jesus. And he ends that story in verse 4 by saying of Jesus, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John tells us in just these few verses that the gospel of John, the story of Jesus, is the story of a battle, a war between light and dark. And as he goes on in this prologue, in verses 6 to 13, that we'll walk through today, John goes from the cosmic to the specific. And so he leans in and he tells us exactly what this battle is going to look like. Now here's, here's the, the, the challenge for you and I living on this side of the gospel of Jesus, 2,000 years after his life, death, and resurrection. We tend to assume we know how the story goes. And so we give it half of an ear knowing that we've seen the end credits, so to speak. And what I want you to hear is that when we miss the information that the gospel writer John is telling us, we will misread the story. And so do this with me. Lean in and let's ask John, what is it that you want us to know about this light coming into the world and the darkness that will try and overcome it. So here's three things we're going to walk through today. First, we're going to look at the witness to the light. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. The witness to the light. Second, John tells us what the darkness looks like. And then finally, John tells us how the light overcomes the darkness. The witness to the light, what the darkness looks like, and how the light overcomes it. John continues in his uh, gospel in verse 6, it says this, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John, going from verse 5 to verse 6, kind of pulls us in from cosmic and grand into reality, right? It's like he he zooms the camera in. If you've ever seen one of those videos that will kind of start on the earth in one place and then it zooms out and you get a satellite vision of the state maybe and then the country and the continent and then the globe and it continues to, to backtrack. Have you guys seen that? right? You, you, you get this grand vision at the end of the universe. John starts there. In the beginning was the Word, 
right? He starts even further out than the universe. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and by Him, for Him. And then the verse we talked about in Him was life and the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But then John zooms in. There was a man. We've gone from the cosmic now down to a single man. Right? And it's a little bit clunky. Right? If John was like, you know, videoing your uh, kid's sporting event, he just he hit the zoom real quick. Right? Like that moment where it looks real good and stable, and then someone looks like they have a small seizure while trying to videotape, and it just zooms in on nothing for a while. Then they try and find your kid again. Is that just me? I have some built-up uh, anger, apparently, about people. That's what John does. He zooms in fast. But this big transition, even if it's a little clunky, is meant for us to see something. That in the midst of this cosmic tale, we need to know about this man named John who was sent from God. The gospel writer, who doesn't refer to himself as John in his story. So when you read the name John, he's speaking of John the baptizer, or John the Baptist. Instead, the gospel writer John gives himself a cute little name that he calls the disciple whom Jesus loved. Right? Very, very humble is John. Or maybe he just sees Jesus like he actually is far better than we do. So he zooms in on John the Baptist, and he's telling us with these details that this is not just a cosmic, theoretical, artistic type of story, but that as big and grand as it is, it's real, and it really happened. Right? The four Gospels are not primarily story. The four Gospels are not primarily motivational. They are primarily historical. They are, his, they are primarily factual. That's why when you read the Gospels, you'll oftentimes see names of real people that are attached to even their like patronage, their lineage, their father and their mother and their father's father and the town that they came from. Because these Gospels were written within a generation of these events actually happening. And so if they're putting names in there, one of the things they're trying to say is, if you don't believe me, go talk to Joseph of Arimathea. He was there. He carried the cross of Christ. You don't need to believe me. And so the gospel writer is saying there was a real man named John, and he really did come, and he really did bear witness to the light of Jesus. A few years ago, Rachel and I were, were talking about taking a, a big vacation, and we've always dreamed about going to, to Europe and, uh, you know, like flying into London and then taking the train down and, and you know, flying back out of Rome and we said, hey, listen, we should start saving for a big vacation. Otherwise, we'll never do it. And we said, where, where do we want to go? And so we started looking at different trips, and we started eventually, uh, we came across some tours through the Holy Land. And uh, we started just kind of looking at some of the details, and I came across this video, and it was, like I was talking about earlier, really poorly shot, okay? But having said it, it was poorly shot of the Jordan River. And it had pictures of the coast of the Sea of Galilee and the hillside where perhaps the Sermon on the Mount occurred and the place outside of the walls of Jerusalem where Jesus was potentially 
crucified. And as I watched it, I couldn't help but think, God's feet touched that ground there. Like he was really baptized in that river. He really walked. And, and I, I knew this, but in that moment, I, I started to know it in my heart. And the gospel writer is trying to tell us, hey, listen, this is big. Before the beginning, the foundation of the world was God. Created all things. But I'm telling you the story about when He came. He really came. And He came and there was a man named John who bore witness about Him. We're told that He was sent from God. Literally, the Greek there is He was commissioned for all of our military members. He was commissioned by God as His representative to go with a specific purpose. And that purpose, as John so lovingly tells us, is He came as a witness to bear witness. Those are, are, are the same word, one verb, one noun, that comes from the Greek word marturia. It, it, it's, a, it's a legal term. Typically, you would find this type of witness in, in a courtroom, in a trial. The person that would stand up and say, yeah, I saw him do it. And John is trying to tell us something. The, the Jewish court system was, was the, the envy of the world. Right? Even as far back as the book of Deuteronomy in the beginning of Scripture, the Lord tells the people of God, if you're going to try and convict a man, it must be on at least two or three witnesses. One witness won't do. It cannot simply be word for word. There needs to be multiple people that can testify that whatever you think happened really did happen. And the Gospel writer is saying, hey, this is the first witness in the trial of whether or not Jesus really did come. Of whether or not He really was the eternal Word, the Son of God. Of whether or not He lived a perfect life. Of whether or not He died the death we claim. And whether or not He rose victorious from the dead. That's who John is. A witness that came to bear witness. Now we should ask ourselves the question as we're introduced to John, this witness. Why did Jesus need a witness? Why did God in human flesh, who did all of these miracles, why did He need a witness? Jesus Himself gives us two other witnesses. He says in the Gospel that He's built for Himself the witness of the Father who testifies that He is the Son and the Word that testifies that He would come. And yet the Lord starts to pull in these ordinary men and women to bear as witnesses. And you're going to see this all throughout the Gospel of John. Again and again and again, men and women, oftentimes sinful, broken, messy men and women, bear witness to the glory and the goodness of Jesus. That's the honor that we have, church. We have been called to be witnesses who bear witnesses to the coming of the light. And you don't need to be able to bear witness necessarily in every logical or scientific apologetic way. You're called to bear witness like John. 
that you've seen him. John, when he first sees Jesus, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. I am not worthy to even untie the straps on his sandals. You and I are called to bear witness about who he is and what he has done. The Gospel writer tells us that there was this witness, John, who came to bear witness to the light. And then he goes on in verse 9 through 11 to talk and tell us about what the darkness looks like. It says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, but they did not receive him. You know, when you think of kind of great adventure movies or tales, uh, I think of like The Hobbit or, or Lord of the Rings. If you've read the books or seen the movies, the, the enemies, the bad guys, right, they're, they're over the top, right? They're, they're, they're hideous, they're powerful, they're, they're dark, they're menacing, right? Or maybe if, if that's not your genre, go back to like Predator or Alien. I don't know, maybe that's your thing. Okay, a couple people are like, yeah, now you got me, Michael. You hit me in the heart. Right? They're just, they're over the top. You see them, and you don't need to be like, you know, a literary scholar to be able to go, hey, those guys look bad. I don't think I want to hang out with them. Right? But life doesn't actually work that way. Most of the time, the bad guy is difficult to spot. I've been watching through the, the movie or the TV series, The Chosen, over the last couple of years. And if you haven't seen it, The Chosen, it's, it's absolutely great depiction of, of Jesus and his followers and, and, and just the, the, the divinity, but also the humanity of Jesus. He jokes, which my kids love. But the whole story is pretty much about the disciples as Jesus is bringing them in. He's calling them into following him. And and one by one, he he starts to call them Peter and Andrew and James and John and Nathaniel and right. And you start to see them. And if you've read the stories, as he's calling the gospel, the the disciples, you start to like go, all right, when's he coming? When's he coming? When's Judas going to get called? And and it, it happened at the end of season two and the entire time I'm like waiting. I'm like, how are they going to be, like, how are they, like, is this guy going to be like, like, I don't know. I think in my mind I was thinking he'd be like a mobster, you know, um, and just have like a really thick accent and just real like smarmy and I don't know what I was thinking. But on the, on the show that they actually introduced Judas, you know what the crazy thing was? I didn't know he was Judas because he looked like all the other disciples, he seemed to want to follow Jesus. He, he claimed even that he wanted to do honorable things for God. He looked like everybody else. John here in verses 9 on down through 11 introduces us to the darkness. The darkness that pushes back against the light of Jesus And it doesn't appear to be big or evil or dark or hideous. And in fact, John could have used the famous iconic line, we have met the enemy and he is 
us. John tells us that the darkness, that in verse 5, that he says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, the darkness that we think is evil and bad and that rejects Jesus and that fights back against the goodness and grace and mercy and love of the Lord, it's us. That's who John says. It says the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own people, and His own people did not receive Him. John tells us that the Creator comes to the creation, and the creation wants nothing to do with Him. And then he goes a step further. Rather than just describing Him as a distant, sovereign, powerful Creator rejected by His creation, he says that Jesus came to His own people. That's a familial term. He he literally says, Jesus came to His family, and His family rejected Him. Think about that for a second when you contrast that statement to, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That big God came to His own creation, His own people, His own family, and they refused Him. The, the words that immediately came to my mind as I was just thinking about Jesus being rejected by his family is, is a line from one of my favorite movies, A Knight's Tale. It's as if they looked Jesus in the eyes and they said to him, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you have been found wanting. What audacity. That humanity would ever say that to their Creator. What is going on here? Now let me caution you against something because Christians reading this passage typically fly right by this verse. They want to go to the next verse because they know that the next verse says, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Surely that's me, not the other people. But I want you to hear this loudly. We are all found here in verses 10 and 11. We are all here. We have all been here. And we are all even now in Christ prone to return here. Listen, the Holy Scripture is is really brutally honest when it comes to the depravity the brokenness of the human heart. I just I want you to close your eyes for two seconds. I'm going to read a number of passages. But I, I just want you to hear the way that Scripture describes us. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention... Every thought of his heart was only evil continually. Romans 3, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. 
No one seeks for God. All turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Psalm 51. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Even in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And finally, John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus came. He came to save. He came to bring life, to redeem, to heal. And humanity didn't want it. We did not want it. We didn't want a Lord. We didn't want to be children. We didn't want to be led in this life. We preferred leading ourselves into death rather than being carried into life. Even us as Christ followers, now, we still do this. We still weigh Him and measure Him and believe that we find Him lacking. Every area of your life where you refuse to give Him control, He comes to us and we do not receive Him. Every area where you and I believe that we can better rule and reign, He comes to us and we do not receive Him. Every sin that we believe will bring more pleasure or more comfort or more hope than He can give, He comes to us and we do not receive Him. The light has come to save. But hear this. It's come primarily to save us from us. He came to save us from ourselves. And the problem is humanity doesn't often believe it needs saving from itself. Our mission statement as a church is to be disciples who make disciples. And we do this. And then we have several statements that describe how we do this. You know what the first one is? Declaring our desperate need for a Savior. That's the hardest one to do in this community. Telling them that there is a Savior, pretty easy to do. Telling him that his grace is sufficient, oftentimes easy to do. But telling them that they are not enough, that they'll never be enough, 
right? I, I, I've said this bef before to you guys. I say this in counseling sessions all the time, and people hate it, and it's true. I'll say to them, I want you to imagine the person that has lied to you the most. I want, to, I want you to imagine the person that has done the most harm to you in your life. And if the person that you're imagining is not you, you're wrong. We lead ourselves to death. And John tells us Jesus the light came and we wanted nothing to do with him. Now exhale. Because when we see ourselves this way, we are preparing ourselves for what comes next, which is not just a small change and small hope, but a massive transformation and unimaginable hope. John tells us the darkness that pushes back against the light is us, but then he goes on to tell us how the light overcomes the darkness. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how does the light overcome the darkness of the world? John spells it out really clearly. And at first, at first glance, it appears that the way that the light overcomes the darkness is by a few heroes, right? A few heroes of the faith that were kind enough and good enough and loving enough and receptive enough and humble enough to receive Jesus and believe. That's not what John saying. 12 and 13 actually need to be read backwards to understand what John is saying. Read it verse 12, second, and verse 13 first, and this is what you hear. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God, His power, His will. For all those who received Him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. John, throughout his gospel, ties salvation to faith. Paul does, everyone does. But John tells us here that the only people who had faith were born not of the will of man or the will of flesh, but the will of God. That it's only in his gracious, initiating love that we have any hope to have faith. John is echoing the promise of Ezekiel 36 that says from God, he says this to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness, from all your idols I will cleanse you. Hear this, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
John tells us that faith qualifies us for the most amazing gift in the world to become children of God. But he also tells us that that saving faith itself comes from God as a gracious gift. He says it right there. You you can read, but to all who did receive, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, John, how how do we do do that? How do I become one of those people that receive him, that have faith in him? And John tells us, well, it's not from the will of the flesh or the will of man. Well, then what's it from? It's from God. Now, this is hard to understand. It's hard to get our arms around the initiating love of God, especially when we are told to believe. But when you read this passage, it will result in one of two postures. The first posture, if you read verse 12 and say, what I need to do is to believe, then you will have an emphasis on you on where you need to go and what you need to do and how you need to have faith that is genuine enough, pure enough to qualify yourself as one of those who will be given the title of sons or daughters. Or, you and I will forget ourselves and we will fall on our knees And we will plead with the maker of heaven and earth, the one who allowed himself to be hung on a tree as a curse for humanity, and ask him out of his abundance of mercy and grace to give us the gift of faith that we might trust Christ, that we might see him as he says he is, that we might know that his sacrifice is sufficient to cleanse us from all sin, that he would give us a new heart that no longer loves the darkness and rejects him, but loves him and walks in the light. When we came down here, actually before we came down here, I was on staff as a pastor at a church up in the Chicago area, and we had been talking about sending out some people to plant a new church. And my intention and Rachel's intention, we had just built a brand new house up there, and, and we were like, hey, listen, we're super excited to send other people to go plant a church. And uh, then we came down to Mascuda, um, because my parents live here, and Rachel's parents live just south of town, so we came down for a vacation. I don't remember what holiday it was, but we came down, and I went to the only barbershop that exists in Mascuda, Ron's Barbershop, big shout out, okay, go there at least once every two weeks. I get my town gossip and my haircut, right? And so I went to Ron's Barbershop and I picked up the Mascuda Herald, okay? If you are not familiar with this, I believe in newspaper rankings, it's like New York Times, Mascuda Herald, Scott Air Force Base Flyer, right? Right underneath (laughs) of it, okay? Uh, It comes out once a week because that's approximately the amount of time that it takes to fill up a newspaper for Mascuda. Okay, so I'm at Ron's, I'm getting ready to get my hair cut, and I pick up the Mascuda Herald, and on the front page is a picture of a young man that I went to high school with, and the picture was a mugshot. He had been arrested 
as a part of a sting for child pornography. I hung out with this young man. We ran in the same circles. We went to the same parties. And in the moment that I was looking at that newspaper, it was one of the moments where it felt like the Lord's voice was as close to audible as I'd ever heard, and I felt like he said directly to me, the only thing that separates you from him is my grace, that I came for you that I pulled you out of the muck and the mire, that I allowed my light to shine in the midst of the darkness of your heart, that I gave you by my will and power and mercy the gift of faith in me that has transformed you from the inside out. The only thing that separates you from him is my grace. And it was from that moment that I knew that the Lord was calling us back down here to plant a church that would preach that gospel. But if we just read the words of Scripture, it preaches it for itself. John tells us clearly, this is a love story, but it's not a beautiful woman and a handsome prince. It's the love story of a king and an army at war with him. All of Scripture is a war story. If you've read any news over the last couple of weeks, you know what those stories look like. It chronicles fighting and evil and atrocities, the need for bravery, for someone to stand up and fight. But as much as the story is a battle between the Lord and an enemy, it's also the story of the Lord battling against the hardness of our own hearts. We have set ourselves against the Lord. We have made ourselves to be His enemies. We have committed treason against Him. But the shocking thing is that God doesn't just come to defeat us. He comes to transform us. He makes rebels into worshipers. He makes enemies into beloved children. He comes and in the face of our rejection, invites us into His holy presence. Listen, as we read through the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus moving and working. We're going to see Him pushing back darkness. But I want you and I to keep in mind who that darkness is. I want you to keep in mind that it was us, as Peter says in his sermon on Pentecost, that hung Him on the tree. I want you to keep in mind what Tim Keller says of this very moment. Jesus climbed upon the cross, and as he stared out at those he came to save, he did not see ones who were lovely. He did not see ones who were weeping for his life. Instead, he saw humanity crying out all the more for his death and crucifixion. 
and in the greatest act of love ever, he stayed. Jesus is the life of men, the light that shines in the darkness. The light has come, and by God's grace, the darkness has not overcome it. Pray with me.